DJ Poppy, semi and the MC Drape tech on the beat, let's go, y'all Northwest and let's go, check it out, y'all Hey, hey, I said they think Ray Lippin' man, aka NGL His show is the truth, like NGL That means he's not gonna lie, and he's clever when he speaks Plus he runs unplugged, that's the editor-in-chief Special guests on this show have gotten exposure Discuss the sports, music, and popular culture Streetwear, and don't forget the entrepreneurs Cause when it comes to interviewers, man, this dude is the future Always keeping it current Welcome back to The Geo Review, a podcast where I talk to entrepreneurs, athletes, creatives, and more, as well as explore my own entrepreneurial journey. I'm Nathan Graber-Lipperman, the creator of Unplugged and the CEO of Powder Blue Media, and it's been a minute since I last recorded one of these, a little bit more than a minute, about seven months to be exact, and something that's really hit me of late is that I'm really proud of everything I've created in the last three years or so. I actively try to never sound like I'm bragging or I'm overly cocky because I'm not. I don't think what I've created is so inherently better than other people's or that I'm better than other people because I'm not. But looking back over 300 combined podcasts and stories, all of those cover arts and graphics and videos and tweets. It's easy to sit here and, you know, talk about the journey and countless late nights and all those hours upon hours hunched over my laptop, running Photoshop and Illustrator and After Effects all while typing into a new medium doc. But you don't really know what all those hours really amount to and encapsulate unless you've been there yourself. And I didn't do it because I was getting graded or my paycheck depended on it. I put in all that effort because I want to, because I believe in myself and my passion for creating things. And I wanted to build something that could make an impact in a world I often find to be pretty confusing and pretty loud. Uh, But You know, that culminated in an incredible summer. I worked really hard for myself full-time on everything. We brought in some money. We brought in some recognition and press. And it was great. But then we went a new direction in the fall. And I pretty quickly realized that I wasn't happy. And that I was burnt out. And that I was setting way too high expectations for myself. And lumping on tons and tons of pressure. And I knew that I'd have to take a break or else I might be looking at more than just burnout. It took me a while to realize that I didn't have to have everything figured out out of college, that I didn't have to be a millionaire by the age of 21, that even though that motivation to work for myself, that subsequent chip on my shoulder by, you know, rebuking what I deemed to be the normal quote unquote path, It pushed me to put in the extra mile and create really incredible things, but sometimes it simply wasn't the healthiest mindset. And I'm writing a really big piece about this. I've been working on it since December, and I'm excited to release it soon because I think I'm able to tell my story most effectively through my writing. I've always felt that I'm better at writing than talking, and yet I'm here uh, podcasting, but uh, I recognize the irony there. Anyway, what's good is that as I took time to figure things out, I focused on me, spending time exploring relationships with friends, playing ultimate, looking into professional opportunities. I even went on a date, which if you know me, is pretty much the last most out there thing I could be doing. Um, the the characterization of that date also depends on which party you ask but nonetheless after all this i realized that i finally owe it to myself to try and go all in on this thing i created to really see if there's anything here whether it will solely reside as a passion project you can expect weekly conversation-based podcasts from me with different folks from all different backgrounds from entrepreneurs to entertainers to professional athletes and more. I'll also be writing my weekly newsletter focused on how culture influences business and the future of the media industry, as well as a new long-form story for Unplugged Mag every month. Finally, we're bringing a whole lot of awesome collaborative designs to you, as well as relaunching our Patreon and with it, a Discord channel. 
You can find all this and more by logging on to our remade website at beunplugged.com. That's B-E-U-N-P-L-U-G-G-D.com. And yeah, I'm going to be working full-time, eight hours a day, and paying myself over the next three months, as well as picking up some other part-time gigs. I opted to withdraw and not take classes at Northwestern this quarter due to COVID-19 and the fact that I didn't think it would be worth the time or money to do online classes, especially if all the opportunities on campus wouldn't be offered. I was planning on graduating early anyway. Now it'll be in spring of 2021. And look, yeah, I understand my privilege in pursuing my venture. People are really suffering right now, and I'm able to sit in my well-stocked house with my loving family, hammering away on my computer. I also think, however, that the one constant I and most people can control in this situation is what we do at that time and how much work we put in. And I shouldn't feel bad about that just because the world is batshit crazy right now. So yeah, I decided that I owe it to myself to bank on my brand and go all in. I have a lot of awesome projects coming your way that I'm really excited about. Some of these projects will directly benefit those suffering from the pandemic too, which is something else that's really driving me to create new things. To follow along with everything we're doing, you can follow me on Twitter at ByNHGL and Unplugged at Unplugged. That's U-N-P-L-U-G-G underscore D. And again, make sure to go to the website at BeUnplugged.com. And yeah, anyway, for my first podcast back after a long hiatus, I talked to a friend and longtime supporter of the brand, Drew Wanslack. He's a fellow Northwestern student and a guy who spent a lot of time working in venture capital. We talked about the responsibilities of companies, whether or not we should expect them to provide a social good, as well as the influx of VC into the media industry and the student entrepreneurship culture we've both dabbled in. Here's my conversation with Drew. All right, I'm here with Drew Wanslack. So Drew worked as an investor at Basecamp Fund with Alumni Ventures Group. When he's not doing that, he's a sophomore studying learning and organizational change as well as entrepreneurship at Northwestern. And finally, I mean, he's one of our biggest fans. He's a grand pooba himself. How's that for an intro, Drew? Did I gas you up enough? Oh, that's a great intro, Nate. Thanks, <laughs> thanks so much for having me on. Um, always feel gassed up uh, when I get an intro like that. Um, <laughs> but excited to be here, excited to talk about some cool stuff and uh, hope you're staying safe and healthy in this, uh, this crazy time. So yeah, we're going to talk about a lot on this episode. We're going to talk about venture, of course, your experience with it and whatnot. Um, we're going to talk about the media a little bit, the media industry in the future, correlations of that with venture as well. And also a little bit talk about student entrepreneurship and kind of that earning culture. Uh, given your ties to as well. But I mean, to start it all off, you know, you're from North Carolina, you're there right now, which is better, Zaxby's or Cookout? That is <laughs> one of the toughest questions you can ask someone um, from North Carolina. Um, or Bojangles, I forgot about Bojangles. Especially, uh, there is Bojangles. Um, that, that's kind of the... Um, the the hometown one i will say it's a tough one having had both cookout and zaxby's in the past two weeks um it's been my you know one or two times out of the house um was grabbing dinner there i gotta go with the nc nc one and, and stick with my cookout um nothing's better than getting you know a, an entree two sides and a milkshake for less than six bucks um <laughs> that's a tough one to beat being open 24 hours until three, you know, a great kind of post sporting event, um, bite to eat. Um, so I got to go with cookout, but man, I'll tell you, Zaxby's is definitely a close second for me. Yeah, absolutely. I remember getting Zaxby's when I was in, uh, North Carolina sometime and just loving it. Definitely gives a Canes run for its money. But, uh, anyway, so um, they got wings, they have wings. Canes doesn't true. have wings. That is you true. Know? They, they got them there. But, but otherwise, guy myself. <laughs> and you got you got to go with the wings and things. It's got five tenders, three, um, three boneless wings. No, I got that wrong. It's got three tenders, five wings, boneless or bone in, fries, Texas <laughs> toast. Uh, you know, Canes is amazing, but you, you really can't beat the Zaxby's wings and things. It's a good take. That's a good take. So. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you worked with Purple Arch Ventures uh, in Chicago. Um, also, like this past summer, I know a big part of what you're doing is you're working with 10,000 entrepreneurs, which we'll get to kind of towards the end of the, pod of the podcast. Um, 
But, you know, transitioning to base camp fun, you saw a hell, hell of a lot of pitches. And I got to ask, because, you know, you see, like, the crazy startups. You see the crazy Kickstarters. Um, I always think there's a funny story where I went into a WeWork in Brooklyn the summer after my freshman year. And I saw, like, uh, there was a guy who just had his little office. And um, he was selling underwear, like, I've probably brought this up to you before in the past, but he was selling underwear specifically targeted towards the LGBTQ plus community. And he just had like the smallest cubicle in the world and just all of his products just like right in, right in like the window. So when you walked in, when you walked by, and I just think like, that's just like such a like encapsulation of the startup grind and hustle and like betting on yourself. But um, getting ahead of myself, what's the most batshit crazy pitch you saw out of all the pitches you've seen? <laughs> yeah there's kind of two two brands of that um some of the craziest but also most exciting pitches i've seen are the ones that i actually didn't get pitched fully on a call um you know just time constraints i can maybe take three five ten different pitches a day um especially in the busier times of the year and, and some of the pitches that come in with the deck and just an interesting primer over email. Um, and I just, I can't take the call cause you know, it's, it's way out there. Um, some of those are the most exciting, but also like you said, the most batshit crazy. Um, some things people are trying to do, I, I think are so exciting and I love so much. There's, there's way too many to pick one. One of the coolest ones that I've, I've heard about, Again, didn't get fully pitched on it, so I might not be doing it justice, but they were taking stale bread and actually making it into craft beer. Um, so there's a lot of regulation around that. There's a lot of things around that. So we didn't end up kind of going That's forward great. with it. Um, but, you know, I read that primer. Talk about recycling, right? And, and I read that primer and I read you that. You said the recycling, uh, uh, you know, ecosystem was broken, but sorry. Yeah, yeah. no, 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 exactly, though. Um, and that was one of those things that when people ask a similar question or the same question, I go, this one was really cool. But yeah, there's, there's a lot to kind of come in that I think are crazy and I still love them. And I wish I could take the call with the founder. Um, but like I said, when I get 10, you know, five or 10 calls a day, um, you got to be a little choosy, but there's a lot that comes in where people are really just kind of betting on themselves and doing these really exciting things. And I go, this, this could be big. Um, but you know, when you don't have a lot to kind of bet on, you gotta be, gotta be kind of choosy with your, your time. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, kind of touching on it all. You've seen a lot of pitches, you've explored the startup world. And I think we've had conversations about this in the past, but I've written and thought about it pretty extensively. And I'm curious to explore your ideas too about what the responsibility of companies are in 2020, kind of transitioning past that, you know, there's people betting on themselves, there's people, you know, working on their passion projects. But I find, you know, a lot of the companies that are strongest nowadays are the ones who, who are mission driven. And even if they're not mission driven, you know, they are providing a social good before. So one, one of the things for me is like you're seeing it like up front with uh, obviously the global pandemic going on, the spread of the coronavirus. Um, you know, you're seeing companies like New Balance, for example, like pivoted its entire U.S. factories to create masks for um, nurses and doctors. Um, and you also see like how governments still do have a lot of power, like South Korea's, you know, worked extremely quickly and swiftly to swiftly to come together amid a crisis. Um, they really did flatten the curve with out major effects on their economy and whatnot. I'm throwing a lot out there, but kind of the TLDR is it's look, I'm like somewhat of a positive capitalist. I try to see the glass half full that at its best a market economy can solve problems and create real change through innovation and hard work. But this also does require buy-in from companies provide social good past just employing people and to have operate with morals. But anyway, kind of circling back to the top question, you're seeing that global pandemic at hand. You see some companies and people rising to the top. Do you believe that it's the responsibility of companies to provide social good or is it morally okay to run something that cares about nothing more than its bottom line? Kind of Milton Friedman-esque uh, route. <laughs> yeah, this is something that I've gone back and forth on and, and I think I've boiled it down to, there's really two sides of the responsibility for companies. Um, I'll kind of dive into one than the other. The first is kind of around the mission-driven social good aspect. I think there's a lot of value in 
creating a company around a set of values that, that you have as mm-hmm. the founder or the head of a company. And it has to be things that you actually believe in um, because a misalignment of those values Absolutely, yeah. that mission between who's leading a company um, and who's kind of coming into that company f- for those values creates really kind of bad situations. Um, and I mean, obviously we've seen kind of the, the Uber debacle a few years ago had a little bit of that is it's one thing to put a set of values on, on your kind of company wall um, or website, but then to actually act those out and those out, you need to have those values already or be prepared to really commit yourself to that. Um, and if social good and kind of giving back is an important part of that, and that's an important part of that. And you know, that's the talent you're going to attract. Um, you know, good companies to me are when all the employees are aligned together and kind of their, their values. So, you know, if you're a company like Allbirds or, you know, Tom's or Orby Parker and, and part of your kind of model um, or values is giving back, you're going to attract people that want to give back. And I think you create a strong company. On the other mm-hmm. hand, you know, if that's not part of your values, I don't think you're a bad company. Um, you're just going to get people that also have those values and kind of subscribe to that mission. Um, and I don't think that makes you a bad company. I think there's, you know, a lot of just financial sense in, in doing social good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of, we can talk about branding, but there's a lot of kind of great brand reputation going on with a company like new balance. Um, mm-hmm. you know, one post of this kind of, you know, dare I say kind of cool looking mask, um, on they created on LinkedIn and Twitter. I've seen it all over the place. I mean, that's huge. Um, you know, for me, you know, I, I don't buy a lot of new balance shoes, but my next pair of shoes might be new balance seeing that and going, Hey, you know, they're doing a lot for, for this crisis. Um, and the second thing is I, I think I do probably fall into a little bit more of kind of the Milton Friedman style of economics in that, um, you know, capitalism is, you know, the greatest kind of economic system when it has its proper checks. Um, a really strong economy is one where there's kind of this, you know, mixed capitalism going on where companies are, you know, driven by profit and they're driven by, you know, employee success. And then it's up to the government to put these checks on these companies. Um, that back and forth to me is what's really valuable when we start putting kind of the onus um, and responsibility of companies to be doing the ones doing good, um, you get into these really tricky situations. There's a lot of, you know, big companies that may be able to afford to do some of these things. And there's a lot of struggling companies right now that can't. Um, and so it's important that we kind of allow companies to kind of go for that economic growth, go for, you know, those profits and, and larger revenue. Um, spoken like a true capitalist, but then it's also up to, you know, the government to put some checks on that um, and say, yes, you can drive for profits and do what you got to do because that's going to stimulate the economy, but we're going to also make sure you're not polluting our air, you're polluting our water. Um, We're also going to make sure you're not taking advantage of workers or if you are, you know, taking jobs away from one industry because, you know, you're an Amazon, you're replacing a lot of these retail workers um, with, you know, e-commerce and online retail, then you have some responsibility placed on you by the government to, you know, help facilitate that shift. Um, So I think there's a lot of like back and forth between the government's role in our economy and, you know, businesses role in our economy. Um, Too often, I think we want to be pure capitalists and say it's up to companies to do kind of social good. Um, but there's no check on that. And, you know, I don't know there should be, um, but being a part of a company and if you're leading a company, there's a lot of hard decisions to be made and it's, you know, do I pay myself? Do I pay my employees or, you know, do I lay off some of my workforce so I can do social good? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, one of the things I'm just thinking about this more and more is because, uh, I mean, even here's a story, like I was in like a class or sorry, or some, some setting where people were pitching and one of the guys was a VC who was judging it. Uh, I think he was probably like late twenties, early thirties. And he got up at the end to like, kind of, you know, say some words about what he thought about the pitches, um, give some advice as everyone continued to pursue their ventures and whatnot. And he said, Look, 10 years ago, when I was sitting with fellow students, my peers, anyone who was coming out with a business idea, anyone who was pitching, 
we were creating things that with the sole purpose of how can I scale something quickly and cash out? Like that's our goal and whatnot. And to see where most of the ideas are coming from, where a lot of the ideas are, uh, you know, being formed with the purpose of helping people, that's really interesting. That's a really different dynamic. And I think it speaks to, you know, kind of like the next crop of entrepreneurs and uh, people interested in the startup sphere. So I don't know. I think, I think it's just an interesting conversation to keep having, talking about the strongest company cultures being mission-driven and whatnot. But I also think, as you are talking about from a branding perspective, there's a lot of market research surrounding Gen Zers uh, not being tied so much to um, individual brands, but you know, making purchasing decisions based on you know, products and whatnot, being a little more brand fluid. But the brands that are able to cut through that and get that brand loyalty are the ones that are more mission-driven and are standing for something. Um, so I do think not only like moving forward, yeah, because I, I agree to a degree. It's like you can't really fault someone for what, how you put it, stimulating the economy and whatnot when they're creating a company. But uh, I think both from a branding perspective and long-term actual like a long-term uh, revenue stream gathering, I don't know what have you, uh, perspective, uh, I think mission-driven companies are primed to be like more and more successful as culture changes a little bit. But Maybe that all sound a lot, but really rambly. I don't know. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I know it you're totally thinking about these sense. things too from the VC perspective. Yeah, and that's something that I, I tell people a lot is, you know, mission driven is is really powerful and create these set of values that, and it's something I didn't mention before, is like, it's not only something that you want your employees to share, you know, it's what are these values that we can kind of always go back to to make decisions? You know, how do we use these values to determine who we bring into the company? you know, as both employees as and investors. Also just making sure those values and kind of that mission aligns with who you want your customers to be. Um, so if you're making kind of these decisions based on values um, on brands and you're looking at a target demo that um, really only cares about price, which, you know, there's a larger discussion there and a lot of kind of branding professors would disagree with me that, you know, most decisions are made emotionally on brand, but, um, you know, making sure those, those are aligned with your customers as well. Um, so a lot of times people want to create these values and not really understand how their customer also feels about those values. So it might make sense. It might have a great company culture. Um, but if you're making decisions based on a set of values or a mission that isn't shared by who you're selling your product to, um, then you're gonna you're gonna fall short. Um, if people are making decisions based on I just need the you know cheapest type of you know toilet paper I can get, and you're making value decisions based on you know how much you're gonna give back per sold or anything like that, um, you're kind of missing the point. But you know I think there's always a lot of value in in doing social good and as well as just you know creating that mission that your company can be centered around. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely, um, I think even moving on to a space that I find super interesting, right? Because there's a lot of, you know, those hardcore capitalists out there who are very based on the idea of if something's not making a lot of money, it should not exist as a business. And what struggled there with that line of thinking is the media industry, in my opinion, um, because there is a broader discussion. You know, you see Bezos earlier this decade buying out the Washington Post, the second biggest legacy newspaper for $250 million, really pennies on the dollar. People joke about that he bought it so that the second biggest newspaper would never investigate him. Uh, the importance of uh, working media in um, you know, a democracy cannot be undersold, even if as time has gone on, our prioritizations and interest in that working media has uh, somewhat diminished, especially with the uh, current administration's constant attacks on the media. I'm uh, kind of, of course, espousing some of my opinions on all this and whatnot, but I think <laughs> it's interesting talking about mission-driven companies and the media because you're seeing more and more ventures start to invest in media. Now, the interesting discussion here is that you have seen a lot of companies raising a lot of money from you know the tech and vc world that you didn't see in the past but you know you have a lot of these very direct-to-consumer facing brands in terms of the sports pop culture world 
And something you kind of pointed out to me once, because we're in a Slack that a lot of, you know, like venture tech startup people are in, are talking about stuff and whatnot. And, and when the, the Ringer and Barstool deals happened, it was, it was popping off a little bit. So I'm curious, like, why do you think VC Twitter, VC Slack, what have you, VC world, why do you think they love talking about D2C media podcasting companies so much? Because I'm curious as someone who like obviously loves this world and is probably going into this world as a profession. But like at the end of the day, it's not like a lot of these companies are creating anything like crazy innovative. They're not exactly breaking the wheel. So like, where do you think that fascination comes from? Yeah, a lot of it is, is financially driven. Um, so a lot of VCs that are sharing this and promoting this and kind of getting these conversations going um, definitely have, um, their own interests in mind, which is, is to me totally reasonable. Um, as a VC, you, it's really cool to have portfolio companies that you love and can use. Um, and that plays really well into media podcasting D to C. Um, there are things that you can use on a daily basis. You know, if you're an investor in Allbirds, you can get a couple pairs of Allbirds and wear those <laughs> and it feels really cool. Um, and so the same thing is true, you know, investing in a media company or a podcasting company, um, or, you know, uh, another DTC company like, uh, you know, hymns or hers or a Roman, you know, it's really exciting to be able to share things. Um, both from just it's cool. And also, you know, you're always fundraising and looking for people to invest in you. And if they see you, you know, being associated with these really cool things, people want to be in on that. Um, so there's definitely kind of a, a personal incentive to sharing these things. Um, there's also an element of, you know, VC and, and tech and entrepreneurship is a really interesting industry. And it's a group of really smart, um, talented people. Um, and I think we've both got kind of a taste of that in the different groups and kind of communities we're in. Um, but there are people that are well-educated usually, um, have a lot of really interesting experience and they're, you know, very intellectual kind of heavy learners. Um, and again, media and podcasting plays right into that. Um, these are people that, you know, listen to podcasts, you know, two or three times a day on their commute to work or on a lunch break. Um, and so being able to share that and kind of both from a knowledge sharing perspective, as well as a kind of, uh, you know, look how smart and interesting I am. Um, all these things play into, you know, why it's shared so much disproportionately to the amount of investment dollars going into these companies. Um, I think it's just really easy to share and for people to associate with. Um, if I told you kind of a B2B enterprise SaaS product, that was really cool. And, you know, think before, think about two months ago, um, the amount of people that knew about Zoom, um, outside of kind of the VC entrepreneurship <laughs> Twitter realm, um, relatively small. Um, and now everybody and their brother is getting a zoom account and you know, my parents just did a happy hour with their friends the other day on zoom. Um, those are harder to kind of pitch and get people excited about when they don't really know what the use case is. Whereas I can say, yeah, we have this really cool, you know, going back to the guy you saw in the, we work, you know, we have this really cool underwear brand. You can <laughs> physically go and buy that underwear and wear it. Um, and because it's so tangible for people, they can associate with it. They might invest with you. They might follow you and kind of build you up um, and kind of look at you a little bit differently, which I think is, you know, why, why these things are talked about so much. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the Zoom, though, because uh, I've been reflecting on that a lot because, I mean, like, look, like, we've had, like, Skype and Google Hangouts and, like, all these different video platforms for so long and that, like, my experiences with Zoom had solely been through the... Uh, you know, kind of like entrepreneurial world. It was like people like you sending me Zooms and uh, sometimes for class and stuff. Um, but now it's like, yeah, it's like, oh, I'm going to hang out with my friends on Zoom and this or that. So it is kind of shocking how they kind of like grassroots took over the the video conferencing world. And uh, it's obviously helped their stock a lot and whatnot amongst at least one company is doing well. But um, yeah, so 
look again, we talk about the media, the growing influence of tech and VC on it a lot. I know I keep bringing up the ringer and barstool because I just think those are two companies I'm interested in. But yeah, look, what I think is really interesting about the ringer and barstool is that they really bet big on podcasting as a medium starting in like the early 2010s. And in quick succession, you know, ringer got bought out in full 250 million by Spotify. Barstool got this $450 million valuation as a regional gambling operator bought a 36% stake at $163 million. And you compare that to companies like Sports Illustrated and Deadspin as they're kind of fading away in terms of their influence. They have to lay off entire newsrooms. And in SI's case, they did in favor of, uh, because they wanted to go with cheap, cheap contractors. And um, in Deadspin's case, it's because you saw this VC entity take over and uh, kind of like squeeze the dead spin out, squeeze all the people out, squeeze the the content they were known for making out. And the the last example, which I think has been super interesting to follow, is a company like The Athletic, who I don't really think we've seen before, but they bet big on a unique yet relatively simple business model. You know, we're going to go become the national newspaper. We're going to um, buy all the top writers, kind of started in writing, even though if they've expanded into podcasting and whatnot. They bit big on this model. They raised a ton of money. They spent a ton of money. It was kind of rough in the early going, but um, it's looking more positive now. They raised a 50 million series D in January 2020 as well. I don't know. We're focusing more on sports and pop culture media here because that's, I think, what we're both a bit more attuned to. And honestly, I think VC has been a bit more attuned to due to like, uh, you know, maybe the argument that there's more to scale here and whatnot, as it is a lot of original IP and entertainment in of itself. But I don't know. Do you think the influence of VC on these companies is a good thing? Because you're kind of alluding to before in terms of, you know, like uh, the desire to have like cool companies in the portfolio and whatnot and differentiating it. But do you think it's overall a good thing? Because again, the jury's still out on the athletic a little bit. I think the, the ringer and um, Barstool deals will be good. Obviously, those weren't, you know, VC VCs, but they were getting uh, a lot of offers as they were shopping around and whatnot. Um, but then the ugly side, I think you see like the horror stories at Sports Illustrated and how the landscape has shifted. It's pretty murky, honestly, for a lot of my peers who are banking on getting a professional gig in journalism. Um, again, threw a lot out there, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that the, the important thing, um, what you said was towards the end there in this not traditional VC VC. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an important distinction to make. And, you know, we can roll what I'm about to say on a blooper reel 10 years from now when I'm dead wrong, but I don't think traditional VC really has a place with um, traditional media companies. And when I say traditional media companies, I don't mean newspapers. I just mean, you know, digital print media, if that's the correct term and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um like a, a Sports Illustrated, a lot of these things I don't think have a really good relationship with VC because the nature of VC is how can we make this investment now in the next, you know, seven, eight, ten years? You return as much capital as possible, whether that's through, you know, an IPO, through, you know, an acquisition, um, whatever exit that may be. And that's just really difficult with media companies. Um, it takes a lot of time to kind of build up that audience and build up a media company to the return that a VC would be expecting. And I don't think that's anything wrong with media. And I don't think that's anything wrong with VC. It's just not the best mix. Um, the exciting thing about a lot of these kind of acquisitions and larger investments by, you know, either corporate venture capital arms or other businesses, um, is that you're starting to see this kind of flow of money um, into media. And and you mentioned just podcasting. I think, you know, podcasting to me is a very nascent space, um, but incredibly exciting. The, you know, Barstool and, you know, the ringer being on there um, are definitely some big name ones. But for me, the seminal moment um, with podcasting and kind of these larger acquisitions was really with Spotify um, with both Anchor and Gimlet. Mm-hmm. Um, those two for me was kind of the signal to, you know, maybe even traditional VCs that there's some potential here. Um, but again, it's incredibly risky. There's a lot of luck and like just 
chance and grind in building an audience enough that you can actually turn that around um, and, you know, 10x the value of your company in, in a few years as a media company. Um, so I see kind of an opportunity for traditional VCs, um, and we've talked about this before, is kind of the, the picks and shovels around media. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are these companies that are building products for media companies, right? Yeah, that, like Anchor. and Like, like an Anchor, yeah. exactly, that VCs can invest in, um, you know, and Anchor can potentially get to a point um, where they're getting acquired, which they were, um, or even could get to kind of an IPO point, which is, you know, very exciting for a VC. Um, whereas the specific media company itself might not be able to get there, um, and can take that time and, and build that growth, um, in a way that's, you know, productive and you don't have what happened with sports illustrated, um, or, or a dead spin where there's a lot of pressure kind of around that, you know, production process of, you know, podcasting or, you know, just general media. Um, so I think traditional VC has a place in the picks and shovels and that's how, you know, we can support media and, and better journalism. Um, and, you know, as the Washington Post says, democracy dies in darkness, you know, <laughs> yeah. and so making sure we kind of keep that going. I think that's how traditional VCs can help. But I'm also excited by some of these larger acquisitions and investments by companies um, starting to understand the value of having these functions within their portfolio um, and within their company. Um, I think it's really exciting. So I think it's a distinction to be had. And, and I think people should look at when they see, you know, the Barstool deal, the Ringer deal and some of these athletic investments is who's investing and kind of what's their motivation behind it. Spotify didn't buy Anchor for the same reason a VC would invest um, in in Anchor. Um, So I think that's an important distinction. I think this, you know, we're in a really exciting time, uh, especially with podcasting. I think there will always be a place for, you know, just straight up text-based digital content. Um, But podcasting being the only, um, you know, media form that's still advertising based and growing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really cool. Um, so, you know, TBD on what the next, you know, decade looks like in podcasting. It's super interesting. We can, we can talk more about that, but um, there's a lot going on. That's really exciting. I think it's just the big thing, as I mentioned, is just having that distinction between, you know, where does traditional VC have a play in media? I don't think it has a play directly. Um, but in the ancillary, I think there's a lot of interesting companies that are building stuff for these journalists, for media companies um, that are venture backable. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when, because I do think from the more like, uh, you know, investor standpoint, looking hard at it, uh, because from my perspective, I look at podcasting and I see, you know, you have to be, it's, I, I've been doing the real deep dives on it. You know, it's like 25, the the cost per mill is like $25, right? So for every 1,000 listeners, a sponsor will pay $25. So if you're not talking hundreds of thousands of listens, you know, okay, that's stretching a little bit. But if you're not talking tens of thousands of listens, like you're just not going to make money podcasting. Like that's just like uh, the end of it, unless it's behind a paywall, which is, you know, you see Luminary trying that out, but that's not exactly uh, proven yet. But um I've always looked at podcasting as like, damn, like this is, you have to really bet on yourself to scale a following or else it's like, or else it's just going to be something you're doing either for a branding perspective or for fun. Um, but I do think it's interesting when you bring up that uh, it is like the, the sole um, media, you know, medium that is succeeding right now from an advertising standpoint in terms of revenue streams and whatnot. And I think that's interesting to watch moving forward because the space has become more and more crowded. But if, you know, audiences continue to flock to it, like maybe there is merit to more and more people being able to make money, uh, people and companies making money through their podcasts and whatnot. But I mean, what's pretty evident is that you have to have something unique. You have to have something uh, clear that stands out about the rest. You can't be putting out bad content like I'm prone to doing. Uh, I'm just kidding, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Definitely an interesting space to pay attention to moving forward. I, the big thing I think about though is like, what is the next innovation in terms of, uh, 
media creation because it's not like I think I don't think the bubbles burst on podcasting, but I think guys like Bill Simmons and Portnoy were such early movers. They bet big on themselves and succeeded. And I think now if you're, you know, starting a new media company, it's a big thing is what's like, okay, let's take a look, you know, a thousand feet in the air, whatever the phrase is. And like, what is that next big medium? What is that next big platform in which I can be an early mover and I can set the tone? And I'm saying that as someone who's, you know, like I'm building, you know, media and whatnot, but like I'm using the same platforms most people are using. And I just think that's really interesting to pay attention to moving forward. You know, people want to talk about augmented reality and virtual reality, and I think there's merit to it and whatnot, and they're definitely being used in effective ways in terms of uh, different interactive storytelling from different companies. But I'm not sure if that's it. I'm not sure if that's the next thing. Yeah, I think it's it's important with any sort of media not to lose kind of the forest for the trees and that podcasting well exciting and really I still think really early and I think there's a, a lot to be done with it because the beauty of podcasting is it's it's pretty democratic you know we can record this now and this can be on Spotify and anyone can listen to it and that's beautiful and there's not a lot of other um, forms of kind of media that can be put in mass like that um, mm-hmm. for such a low, low cost. So that's exciting. And so that's why I think it's tricky to, you know, do what Luminary is doing and, and put up a paywall or have any sort of kind of subscription based podcasting. It's all tricky because I think the beauty of podcasting is it is this kind of very democratic way of producing content. Um, and it also is an interesting kind of just thought process and discussion around what is the next kind of medium or way that we're going to produce content and, and share share that content um but i also think everything should be looked at as as a tool um in a toolbox full of other tools that companies should have um a lot of these companies that are doing well aren't just podcasting they're pairing Mm -hmm. that with a lot of other mediums um and it just plays into mm, almost all companies today should have you know, this kind of digital content brand strategy. We live in a digital world. Um, and so it's important to be producing content in all these different mediums. Um, if I think you, you'll kind of miss out if you're constantly looking for the next big medium or way that we, you know, produce content um, and trying to go all in on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's creating, you know, a structure for producing and sharing content that's exciting and interesting and unique. So then when the next big thing comes around, it's really easy to add that to your toolbox. Um, Podcasting is one of those things. There's a lot of kind of podcast networks that are, that pop up that that's the only thing that they do. Um, And, and not the case with, with unplugged because I know there's, you know, a lot of different ways that content shared, whether it's, you know, with the mag, with the podcast, even just on the site. So there's, that's interesting. And so the next big things come along, whether it's, you know, AR, VR, um, whether it's more of a a cameo style way of producing content where, you know, you have, you know, notable or famous people sharing information. um, You're kind of in the good position to to kind of move there. Um, So I'm not sure what the next thing is. I know there's a couple of things in podcasting that I love to pull out in that, the reason I think it's the only ad supported media that's still growing is the ads are very personalized. And we've had some conversations around this, I think, but, um, and that I love when I'm listening to a podcast, you know, whether it's a very tech businessy podcast like pivot, or I'm listening to, you know, one that I'm just trying to like take my mind off things. And I'm listening to Conan's podcast when the host of the show or a guest of the show is the one actually sharing the ad it's more, I'm more apt to remember that and feel more attached to the brand that they're sharing. Um, and I think that's harder to do with something like, you know, TV, um, or on websites, it doesn't feel as personal. And I think that's really exciting. I think people are going to move that way a little bit more. Um, you mentioned before Gen Z is shying away a little bit from sticking with one brand. And I think the replacement for that is not going to be, you know, another wave of, okay, we're going to go back to following a brand, but we're going to start following people. Um, and we've seen this a little bit. 
it's personality driven, right? You're finding people that you really like, whether it's for their personality, whether it's for, you know, their looks, what they've done, the industry that they're in. You know, we've seen this for a few years in, you know, cosmetics and makeup with like the Kardashians. People are following them. Their product is not necessarily better, but people follow what they do. Um, and I think we're going to see that more in media is reliable people or people that we like are going to be the ones sharing content with us, even if they're not the producers of that content um, and creating kind of these brands around people as opposed to, you know, we are Nike, here's our brands and every pair of shoes you buy for the next 30 years are going to be Nike shoes, but it's going to be, you know, here's this athlete, here's this persona you're going to do what they do. And if that happens to be, you know, wear Nike, then we have a better chance of you wearing Nike. And, you know, brands have been doing this for forever. Um, but I think we're going to see more of a shift um, towards this kind of personalized media. Um, you know, and we, we briefly talked about, you know, Gary V before this, before this call, but, you know, he's doing a little bit of that in that, you know, I'm not watching content on Vayner media. I'm watching Gary V content. And so if I don't like Gary V, I don't like Gary V. If I like Gary V, then I like what he says and I trust what he says. And now he has the power um, to share things with me that can be actionable. And then I think you have an opportunity to, to make some money there. Yeah. And I think a, a great platform, and this comes back to the picks and shovels as well as um, uh, the current pandemic we're finding ourselves in was I read that um, Patreon is surging right now. There's like over... 40% increase in terms of uh, the money being pledged right now. And more and more people are, you know, as um, whether or not they're being laid off or whether or not they're just looking to finally have that time to engage their creative endeavors. Um, it's just like a great way to buy into people and uh, personal brands. And um, more and more people are flooding to it, which I think comes back to that is that like I can go support the person because I like what they create. Uh, a big thing for us is, look, we've been involved uh, tangentially, you know, very much directly in different ways with the garage, the student uh, uh, startup incubator on campus at Northwestern. Um, we're both pursuing entrepreneurship minors. And of course, you've been involved with um, 10,000 entrepreneurs, which I'll you explain a little bit more detail as well. But like a big question that we've talked about maybe not ad nauseum, but close to it. But like, look, we're individuals who've seen up close. Can you teach entrepreneurship? Such an open-ended question. It can go a million different ways with it. But like, where are you at with this question? Because I feel like I flip-flop on it so much. I flip-flop on it too. Um, and I probably think about this, or I've thought about this more in the past, you know, year and a half than I have a lot of other things. Um, because it's really interesting, as you mentioned, there's a lot of kind of entrepreneurial education popping up across the country, whether that's in, you know, online courses, whether it's actual, you know, physical locations and curriculum of, of you know, kind of these schools. Um, it's even trickling down into high school now. Um, and it really does beg the question of how do we teach entrepreneurship? Is there a way to do it? How do we teach what an entrepreneur is if we don't even really know what a good entrepreneur is? What are the kind of tools on their tool belt do we need to provide um, as educators that prepare people to be entrepreneurs? Um, and it is. I, I flip-flop back and forth on this because there's kind of one boat um, that, you know, let's just kind of do as much kind of practice and let's run through the motions of building a company, right? And, you know, every single quarter, every single semester, you sit down and you, you know, brainstorm and you, you know, come up with these problems and really dig into that. And then you build kind of the early stages of a company. Um, you can continue that or not. And there's a yeah, lot of courses that. at Northwestern like that, right? <laughs> and, and we've talked ad nauseum about that um, and, and how tiring that gets. But I do think it builds a little bit of muscle memory, mm -hmm. um, if done well, to know, you know, the, the problem is there's a disconnect between A, you know, who you're working with, and if people are bought in, if they care, if people like, are bought in, they care. Right. And that's a big thing. And that's, you know, the pitches I hear and the people I meet, you can tell when people care about something. And that's when you start to care about something. When you talk to someone that cares about it, um, you know, our very early conversations about unplugged, um, this wasn't really a space that I cared too much about. Um, but seeing your passion for it made me feel 
you know, excitement and passion for it. Um, so that's a big thing. I think there's a big misstep there with the muscle memory and kind of running through the motions um, style of teaching entrepreneurship. And then you have to look at other entrepreneurs, you know, that aren't the Zuckerbergs, Evan Spiegels with Facebook and Snapchat respectively of the world that are, you know, kind of these uber nerds that just want to build and they're just building stuff and they want to do entrepreneurship and they want to start their own thing. There's, you know, the, the Jeff Bezos and, you know, a lot of other really successful entrepreneurs that didn't start an entrepreneurship. You know, they start in an industry, they go really deep, you know, deep on that T that I mentioned earlier and they know something really well and they know all the inefficiencies and problems within that industry or within a specific scenario. Um, and that creates a really powerful entrepreneur because you can talk for hours on what you're building. It's not, how do I go find a problem and then try to solve it as someone that knows nothing about this space? Yes, I can sit for the next couple of weeks or months and like really do a deep dive on it. But there's a lot of really successful entrepreneurs that are successful because they know their industry like crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, and they've kind of been forced into entrepreneurship because they found this problem, either it was affecting them or people close to them, and no one was doing anything about it. So how do we teach that in a college environment? Um, so when someone gets to that point in their career, they can look back and say, oh, as a Northwestern grad, I remember learning this in my entrepreneurship classes. Um, so I think until we can figure out what makes a good entrepreneur, we can't really determine how we can teach it. Um, I know there's a lot of tools in kind of being an entrepreneur that are helpful. Um, I hate to kind of dive into this because to me, it starts to sound a lot like a business education. And there's a lot of <laughs> to me differences between going, you have to, to be constantly you know, journaling. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> between going to kind of an undergraduate business. I love journaling by the way. Right. Uh, yeah, no, it journaling is good. And that's the thing with entrepreneurship is, um, it's flexible and it's unique to you. So how do we create a curriculum that teaches that across the board? You know, um, it's to me either teaching you how to discover how you work and how you ideate and how you manage people. Um, or it's just teaching you straight up very practical tools to use as you're building a company. Um, whether that's like having a really firm grasp on, SEO or content creation, mm -hmm. branding, like legal accounting stuff. Those are all things entrepreneurs have to learn on the fly. Um, so if I can pull that away from, you know, my Northwestern education and then get to a point where I say, wow, there's really this like really bad problem that no one's taking advantage of. Um, I can do that. And the way I work is different than all my classmates. I don't have to worry about that. They didn't try to put me into this box, but I know how I can do my taxes at the end of the year. I know how I can optimize my site. I know how I can like brand a really good pitch deck and raise some money. Um, so there's a lot of these practical tools that I think schools are, are offering. Um, but I think that could be more of the focus. Yeah. I mean, tax season, baby. Um, no, for sure. I agree with you a lot with you there. I think what it comes down to is that, uh, it's just really hard to assign a grade to a startup and building something because like at the end of the day, like I do firmly believe that you have to like really devote a lot of time and energy and passion into something past just a letter grade and past just, uh, you know, the dynamics of a 10 week class in order to get it off the ground. But maybe that's just my bias. Um, and and I've just found it difficult being in some of those classes and it's very much like, you know, Oh wait, so there might be like more than homework to this, you know, uh, a, a big thing is it's like, if you're going to go into a space, you know what, like you better know that space. Like you can't, I can't just sit here, you know, tangentially and say like, I'm the master of the media or I'm the master of like streetwear and whatnot and expect like everyone to, you know, come flocking. It's like, you got to read up on stuff. You got to be paying attention to industry trends and changes and you have to just be constantly uh, you know, talking to people, postulating, thinking about what's next and uh, knowing it and whatnot. And maybe that's just my two cents, but um, you probably shouldn't be building uh, a new x-ray machine if you've never been in the hospital before. Um, right. But yeah, and you kind of mentioned that first time, you know, talking to me and whatnot, just completely wrapping this all up. So um, 
I am curious. So the context in which uh, you were talking to me was, of course, for the 10K program. I'll let you kind of uh, explain what that is. So yeah. uh, first, I'll ask about that. But also, I'm curious, what, what were your first thoughts? You kind of alluded to them before. But like, what did you think about me and Unplugged when you were first hearing me and talk about it and whatnot? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll talk about 10KE first, and then I'll kind of hop into that. Um, so 10KE, or 10,000 Entrepreneurs, is a nonprofit started by ABG, Alumni Ventures Group, the company um, that I'm a part of. Uh, I was asked to kind of start and now run this program um, that gives grants to college student entrepreneurs. Um, so we really wanted to find ways to support the people that we're starting these companies at the earliest stage. Again, going back to this thing of how do we excite people about entrepreneurship? How do we prove to them um, that it can be a really cool thing, a really interesting thing, and you can actually do you know, some good um, while being an entrepreneur? And so we had a lot of discussions around what are the best ways to support these students? Um, and we kept coming back to this issue of just straight up financial support. Um, entrepreneurship, there's a really big barrier for a lot of people in being able mm -hmm. to explore it. Um, and I think the more of a deep dive you do into, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs, you'll realize actually like how big this barrier is. Um, that if you are, you know, can financially support yourself and it's okay to take three, four months off during your summer and build a company, um, you're in a really good place. And you know, we love that and that's awesome. Um, but there's a lot of students that don't have that opportunity. So how can we support them? Um, so the goal of 10 KE, we give 2,500 or $5,000 grants, um, to students pursuing a passion project, pursuing their company, um, or working at a startup that may not be able to, to pay them. Um, so this could be anything from, you know, I want to travel around and really pursue photography because I love taking photos and I think I'm, you know, I've got a knack for it and I've taken some classes and, and whatnot, or I'm building this company and, you know, we have 30 company, 30 customers. We're not making enough because these are all in pilot to, you know, pay ourselves yet. Um, and if I, you know, don't have any sort of outside funding, then you know I might have to go work at the Dairy Queen this summer and put this on hold, and we don't want that to happen. Um, so 10K's mission is really to kind of lower that barrier, make sure you know you help pay some of your rent, uh, maybe pay some of your team members, or you know get you enough ramen to make it through the summer. Um, so that's our goal, um, and that leads in great to kind of how we met. Um, so I was just starting the program um, when I think we first talked. Uh, like winter, winter, 2019. winter, winter 2019. Yeah. So the, we had just started up the program, um, last year. And I remember kind of seeing your face around, um, around campus, different garage events and whatnot. Um, thought it was really cool. Hadn't had an experience with any sort of media company, um, or anyone doing the stuff that you were doing from such kind of a close perspective. Um, and I loved kind of the mission, you know, we talk a lot about kind of having a mission around a company um, and the mission of, of powder blue and, and unplugged um, being kind of this long form, you know, Gen Z experience media company um, was really intriguing. Um, and I think that's something that you also just share, you know, anyone that has a conversation with you can pull away a lot of these elements of, you know, he's someone that a really cares about, what he's writing about and talking about. Um, but also this kind of greater mission of like, we should be speaking about issues that Gen Z cares about and we should be doing it in a really smart way, you know, in, in long form. Um, and so I thought that was just super exciting and that connection right off the bat of understanding how close you were to what you were building um, was really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I just asked that question to hear you gas me up, but um, no, um, <laughs> It's, it's awesome. I, I have to say like everything uh, Drew talked about with 10K2, not even to like push them too much, but like, look, it, it did help me uh, work uh, all summer on Unplugged and really develop a business plan and whatnot. And um, it's definitely a really valuable experience. I cherished a lot getting to work for myself, uh, you know, 
nine to five and way plus five. Um, <laughs> but uh, I definitely, I know that um, your guys round of um, interviews and whatnot uh, it, for this year's iteration, this year's cohort has kind of come to a close, but uh, I hope you guys keep doing it uh, in the future and whatnot and um, keep pushing and whatnot. Cause it was just like, the phenomenal experience for me. I couldn't have imagined doing my summer any other way, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, for, first love to hear kind of the, you know, your experience with 10 KE. I think, you know, we've been fortunate to have a lot of similar experiences and, and like you said, our kind of deadlines closed and we'll be announcing winners for this year soon. Um, but any little bit helps and that's how we feel about that. As for you, um, um, don't have any questions right now. Um, I know there's going to be, a, uh, you know, we'll, we'll connect soon. But thanks yeah. for having me. Absolutely. Well, you came back. The podcast is back. It's going to be coming out every <laughs> Wednesday. You can follow him on Twitter at Wanzlak underscore Drew. That's W-A-N-D-Z-I-L-A-K underscore D-R-E-W for all of your uh, VC Twitter memes and whatnot, right? But uh, <laughs> all Drew, VC Twitter. It's all VC Twitter. Yeah. No, I really appreciate it, Nate. Thanks for having me. That's it. Thanks for Drew for coming on this episode of the GL Review. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at ByNateGL and follow Unplugged at Unplugged. That's U-N-P-L-U-G-G underscore D. And log on to the website at BeUnplugged.com for all the latest news, designs, content, and more from the Unplugged team. Until next time, see ya.